Hey guys, and welcome to episode 42 of Underrated, a show where we talk about great films that just don't get enough love. I'm your host, Gabriel Green, and with me today, after bailing on us last week, is my co-host, uh, James Hamrick. I missed you, man. Yeah, I was really bummed that I missed out on that conversation. That's that's a movie that's kind of been on my radar for a good while. Um, I was like, finally, I get to see it, and summer, summer school started, and just never got I, I never had the time I won't have excuses now and, yeah I really wish you could have been here too that's it's a kind of film that you just have to talk about uh, and we had a really fun conversation I, I'm really curious to hear what you, you thought about it or if you finally get around to seeing it that'll be an interesting conversation so today is my pick and we're talking about the hunchback of Notre Dame or is it Notre Dame or Notre Dame I I've heard both and I'll probably end up saying uh, both several times over the course of the episode. Do you have any idea which one's supposedly right? I say Notre Dame, but Notre Dame. Uh, it's I'm probably not... like America, like America and England or something. Who knows? Um, yeah, but before we get to that, I'd like to ask you guys if you in, uh, if you enjoy the show to please take a moment uh, and review us on iTunes. Uh, just a few words and uh, five stars would be very helpful. We'd be very grateful for that. All right, James. Uh, so, have you seen any cool movies this week that you want to mention? Uh, yeah, so I actually, we're recording a bit late, I just got back from seeing Dunkirk, nice. which I need time to really think, I I want, I know, it, this is a movie that I need to see again, because I get why it's, so I don't want to, it's not like crazy divisive, it has a 95 on Rotten Tomatoes right now, but I have, I know several people who were fairly disappointed with it, and a lot of people who think it doesn't stack up to his other films, and I I kind of get it. I understand a lot of that, and I was there's probably a middle portion of the movie where I was thinking I was going to be that, because it started off amazing, and I mean, without spoiling anything, I was just like, man, I feel like this movie's just kind of moving along, but not really going anywhere. But... I, the way he blends it all in the end, it ended up making me realize that I was actually more emotionally invested in what was happening than I thought. Like, whenever mm-hmm. it all came to a climax, I was like, I started tearing up and I was like, oh, I have been caring. I just didn't realize how much I've been caring. Um, and then just, I think a lot of the criticism is that it doesn't have, like, the heart that you might expect it to. Um, and that it feels kind of cold um but one area in which i don't think anyone will be criticizing this movie is just in terms of direction like if wally fister doesn't get his best cinematographer it, it, it was uh Hoyt Van Hoytema. oh that's right i forgot fister's um uh, he's doing his own stuff now isn't he i'm not, I'm not sure but yeah he's the same guy who directed who uh who shot uh interstellar oh okay that's i just need to get used to saying that well he well then it's that guy he deserves an Oscar because this man just whenever we're up in the skies with Tom Hardy it is just beautifully shot like ridiculous I like I was literally just sitting in my chair with my jaw dropped like this a war movie shouldn't look this beautiful but my (laughs) gosh this is just gorgeous um and then like when it gets intense I felt like there are moments where I just I felt like I was drowning because it's all like it's so much of it is at sea and you just feel claustrophobic and yeah his 
he was teaching a master class in direction, I feel like, with this movie, regardless of what people think of the final product. Nice. I, I, I hope I'll, I can see it tomorrow. I've, I, I've been looking forward to this thing since it was announced. I mean, Christopher Nolan rarely, rarely disappoints. And then, I well, actually, before that, I had seen War for the Planet of the Apes, which I was in, in a normal... It's, it's probably my favorite of the year. Um... I know there's some disagreement between us over that. I like this film. And if it wasn't for Monster Calls, I could forgive it. But since a Monster Call, you are counting a Monster Calls this year, I cannot forgive that. <laughs> I, I think, um, man, see, the reason I don't even want to argue against that is because I don't even want to have to say a bad thing about a Monster Calls because I can't bring myself to do that. It's just a Monster Calls just hits me with one big punch at the end like it i mean it's very emotional like from start to finish but it's just it's like it's that it's like oh this is a really sad movie then bam with war of the planet of the apes like the fallout of the first battle from that moment to the end i was like just having my heart dragged through the mud with that movie just non-stop <laughs> i the way it's all it all has to do with just the continuation of caesar like it was crazy. I hadn't seen the first two since Dawn had first come out, and so I just rewatched them again before the movie. And then I remember thinking halfway through War, where I'm like, I felt like 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 this is a character I know as well as any other movie character at this point. Like his his character arc from the beginning of Rise to the end of War is just I don't know. It's just so well handled, and I just ended up. I was fully enveloped in everything that was on screen from start to finish. Yeah, you, you and a lot of other people have been hailing this as you know, like a masterpiece. And I see why, though. I, I don't. I have a lot of issues with the film. I, I, I agree with mo just everything you said right there. It, you know, just as a drama, how it uses characters. There's so much emotion and heart. Uh, you know, in Andy Serkis' performance, um, and it's it, it is a powerful film, but I do I think the writing isn't very good as far as the 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 plot structuring and just the where it goes it it feels rushed and like just I, I don't want to spoil it and most of my problems with it are in the latter half of the film so it's just a lot of little things that just feel so just convenient or just out of left field and weird and just don't make logical sense or just kind of plot holes that are, just seem to that really stack up by the end and it it's incredibly anticlimactic for me i mean it, it should not have been called war this should have been or dawn or rise and dawn should have been war because i mean if you're going and expecting war don't and honestly I, I i don't think i can really knock a film for its title but still I think within itself, it just it, I didn't really care for how the conflicts were resolved. Uh, but as, again, back to the characters, Caesar's an incredible character. There's another character played by Steve Zahn called Bad Ape, which I think might be my favorite character across all three films. Uh, he, he the just the, the the subtle growth and you see in his character, and he's also quite funny, which is it's kind of it's kind of weird for the how dark the film is, but it works quite well and. I really loved his character and uh, the character of the little girl Nova. Also, I thought they they used her really well. The, well, the way they 
integrated her into the core theme of the film was I thought very powerful. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff. It's just a couple, a lot of, a lot of little nitpicks that just add up for me over the course of the plot that uh, keep me from completely loving. It. I I'd like, I think I like Dawn more, and I rate, I'd rate this one right about with Rise. Uh, but yeah, it's still for a hundred fifty million dollar film, it's incredible they got to make this you know quiet introspective drama. Uh, you know about talking apes. It, it, it's it, it's such a such a different film, and for whatever flaws I think it has, it, it definitely should be uh, celebrated. Yeah, I, I think I'm actually in agreement in some of your some of your criticisms of the uh, the last act. Probably just not to the extent. Um, and then there are others where I think we may just disagree on, but it's something that we need to discuss. Yeah, even more. And then, and lastly, um, I am finally watching the Fast and Furious series. Um, I've seen the first through the fifth one now. Um, and I'm... So it's only just started. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I keep getting told. I'm, and, I, and I'm glad I'm getting told that because I'm still waiting to fall in love with it like everyone else. And apparently I am supposed to be like... I'm supposed to like the first one too, according <laughs> to many. <laughs> I mean, I see it's it's an I think an early two thousands movie and it still definitely carries that nineties charm. And so you can watch it and I can like Charm or cheese. It's synonymous. <laughs> I I I get it, like it's still there's definitely a fun element to it, but Man, if I could just talk about that first one just at length. The way they handle some of those characters, it's <laughs> like they feel like we just told a mature like story with this person. And it's like, no, you didn't. You you just butchered you by trying to make this story arc happen, <laughs> you mishandled it and butchered any semblance of like an actual structure. Like this move what is this movie even about? Like it goes from one thing to the other thing to the other thing, and it's like carry, it carries itself with such confidence. Like it's like, yep, we're this, we're definitely awesome. It's like, what are you doing right now? Like, what is this movie? In all honesty, I know I'm in the minority. I actually, I enjoyed Too Fast, Too Furious more, because to me that one, it felt equally '90s, but it had a much more simple plot. It actually followed, like, a structure in a in a way that was not super needlessly convoluted, and it was less about like all of the inner workings of this group that I don't care about yet, at least yet, um, and more about these two people that feel like they jumped right out of like just a you know buddy buddy action movie or something like that. It was, it had more fun. Um, the only drawback is that I actually do think Vin Diesel is pretty freaking good in these movies, and he's just kind of acting circles around everyone else on screen, in my opinion. Um, even though he seems like just the big tough guy, I think I read in a review there's this really weird balance between this very calm, zen-like nature to him, and then kind of a rage you can see in his eyes, and I think it's played really well. But it's almost negated by Paul Walker walking around with this huge grin for like half the movie, because <laughs> Paul Walker can't act in the at least so far. But 
he's just so likable even as a bad actor that it's forgivable um everybody knows tokyo drift is terrible and that movie was just stupid fast four felt like a repeat of the first one but with less fun and just a better budget and then fast five was the first one i'm gonna be like okay i can get on board with this it's still not amazing but there's like legitimate talent now like I'm, i'm seeing people who know what they're doing making a movie now so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the rest. Interesting. Yeah, I've only seen one and then five through eight. Um, so I kind of got the introduction, which was like I, I was planning to marathon the whole thing. Then I watched one. And I was like, yeah, I don't need three movies of this. I'll I'll just go to the, I'll just skip to where the rock comes in, you know. And I, I I'm also in the minority where I don't think five is the best. I I for seven is probably my favorite, and then I like eight, then five, then six. So. And our tastes seem to be pretty close, so maybe you'll be like that as well. Because well, at seven is where it just completely gives up any semblance of sanity, and it's all the better for it. <laughs> that's that's good because it is weird that that was my biggest problem with the first one and why I did like the second one better was because like the first one was like we're crazy, we're ridiculous, we're over the top, but man, we're like we're serious. This is gritty. This is street racing, and the second one's like we're just a fun action movie. And I'm like I see that's that's what I prefer. All right, I I went I saw Ron Howard's In the Heart of the Sea, um, and it's okay. Uh, it's the main problem is just the script has no substance whatsoever. Uh, but just I really like Ron Howard's direction. One weird thing about this movie is like he just discovered color correct. Uh, it feels like Steven Spielberg's like a War of the Worlds a Minority Report where he like just blasted the whites. And this one, it's just kind of sickly green color he has over everything. That, but his, otherwise, his direction is really solid. Um, there's a lot of really impressive images, and he, he makes some really like uh, thrilling sequences, like when they're out actually out whaling or in a storm. It's really well done. Uh, I think just the whole tone and feel of the movie feels very authentic, and uh, just gets the grit and grime of the time period. And and the cast is all really good. Uh, you got a uh, Chris Hemsworth is always great. Killian Murphy and. Uh, I think Benjamin Walker, Benjamin Walker, he's also good, but it's 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 a decent film. It's very watchable, just because Ron Howard's a very talented director. But there's really li- very little substance to it. Um, and then I also re- rewatched Baby Driver for the third time, and it's amazing. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Please do yourself a favor. Uh, is there anything else I want to mention before we move on? Uh, no, that's it. And I just want to second that because that's just such a good movie. All right, uh, so let's begin our review for The Hunchback of Notre Dame. The Hunchback of Notre Dame was released in 1996, and it's based on the classic novel of the same name by Victor Hugo. It was directed by Gary Troudsdale and Kirk Wise, the uh, same directing team behind Beauty and the Beast as well as Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which, that's actually a movie. Uh, (laughs) No one talks about that one. Uh, I really enjoyed that one. Really? Let me -hmm. me see it. Uh, It had a budget of $100 and it grossed $325 It stars Tom Hulse... Demi Moore, or Demi Moore, right? I think, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Kline, Tony Jay, Paul Kandel, David Ogden Steers, and, unfortunately, Charles Kimbrough, Jason Alexander, and Mary Wicks. We'll talk about that later. Uh, there's a whole slew of credited writers. This is around the time um, 
where Disney was, the films were more of a community project. So I'm not really sure who, who exactly wrote it. Uh, and the incredible music is composed by Alan Menken and the lyrics were written by Stephen Schwartz. Um, so James, are you familiar at all with uh, Hugo's book or any of the previous uh, film adaptations? Uh, not at all, actually. This is, I, I've been aware of its existence and this is actually the first time I've seen it in any like way, shape or form. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I read like an abridged illustrated version when I was a kid. Uh, I read his Les Miserables and it was like a monumental feat of endurance and willpower because it's like 1500 pages and it's a fantastic story, but you know, it, he really needed an editor. And uh, I know uh, the Hunchback is around a thousand pages, so I don't Oof. think that I'll ever actually get around to reading it. Even though I, I do like uh, Hugo to a point, um, but this story is so bleak and deals with so many mature adult themes that I, I, I still, after seeing this movie, I don't understand why Disney made it, but I am so glad they did. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, I, I've always known that this is like, you know, people consider this the mature one. Uh, the the darker one, the one that people like, that you don't really hear the kids raving about as much, you know, when it's it's not the one you put on in the morning just to kind of <laughs> give them something to do. And that always intrigued me about it, but for whatever reason, I just, I'd never gotten around to seeing it until now. Uh, but now I, I see why they talk about it the way they do. This is definitely not the typical Disney movie. Yeah, I, I discovered the soundtrack years ago, and it became... My, fav- my favorite Disney soundtrack without ever having seen the film. And I only, got to, I only saw it the first time a few months back. I, th- I didn't even know I could love it even more, but then I saw the visuals. And also, I think the characters are excellent, too. Let's just start with the characters. Um, first, uh, I think like Tom Hulse as uh, Quasimodo. I think he's really, really good. Uh, he brings the... He has like, the sense of you know, innocence and wonder, but he, he also did his own singing. And, you know, I'm not musically literate enough to know if he was, like, on pitch or whatever, but I really adored his singing. Um, there's so much just like raw heart and emotion in his voice. Like when he's singing the song out there, I just, just want to weep just because of how powerful, uh, just, just how, how much you feel what you feel, what he feels through his, his uh, voice. It's, it's, I think it's really incredible performance. Yeah. Just, it's, it's weird. Like his, when he's just regularly speaking, like, he almost does have that kind of Disney lead where it's just this this innocent kind of very likable kind of like a kind of charming voice where it's like yeah I get why you cast him in the lead um but then I he's also able to really like get very emotional to an extent that I think a lot of other Disney actors haven't been able to and there's I don't know maybe be, just because of the the material he gets to show more of a range so he can get really intense. Uh, I, I thought he did great. And I I was going back and forth and still kind of am on my thoughts on this scene because it's, I, I like, I like it because it is what you'd say where it just, it feels incredibly raw and emotional and very heartfelt. And the only thing that makes me go back and forth on it is just in terms of like, actual ability i don't think he's quite as good of a singer as other people in the movie and maybe if 
if everyone else wasn't as good of a singer and everyone just kind of sounded like they were singing that way, it would felt more normal. But with everyone else just giving these what just sounds like really great vocals, he sounds good. It, it, it's not that he sounds bad. It's just he's giving a very raw and real performance that doesn't end up quite sounding, I guess, as technically good as everyone else. But, but for me, it's just I'll take feeling every ounce of passion and pain or whatever that character feels over you know, having a pristine performance. I think there's, there comes a point in musicals where it's, it really is. You really, you, you, musicals are a way for us, you know, to peek into the character's soul. So I'll, I'll take the emotion, I think over, you know, technical uh, perfection. Yeah. I was, I mean, it's, it's to the point, I don't even really have it here listed uh, in my notes as anything to complain about. Um, And, like you said, during during his song, there are moments where it's like, I can just picture the actor in the studio, like, giving it his all in the booth. So, uh, I think it definitely works for the movie. I think it, it, the character that Hugo created is, is really fascinating, you know, of someone who is, quote-unquote, a monster. But, and like, in the eyes of society, he's some he was, uh, you know, he people, they see him, they're immediately terrified, but he is, you know, he's a good person. He 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 loves he loves and cares about others, and and throughout Hugo's work, you can see him like exploring, you know, themes of prejudice and like the hypocrisy within society. And I think just Quasimodo is such a fascinating character who can who who can like displays all of that you know, within you know his body, just how the, all the prejudices of society against him, but also how he takes that and. That also kind of goes over to uh, Judge Frollo, who is supposedly the righteous one, you know, the, the perfect man. But man, this character, he is my favorite Disney villain. Uh, I just have so much to say about him, just because th- not only is he like every bit as scary and imposing as any good Disney villain should be, but like, he, but thing is, even though he's deeply evil and corrupt. He is also just completely human. Um, just there's nothing like supernatural or like ins- he's not insane. He's not just like this maniacal demon. He is very much a human. And I think that's what makes him so scary is that he is so real. Like his, the driving forces behind everything he does is, you know, is like pride, lust and fear. And uh I'll, I'll let you talk for a little bit before I go on, because <laughs> I'm going to go on forever. I was about to say, it's going to be really hard finding room to talk about other characters, because I kind of... He definitely takes up the majority of uh, of room in, in terms of what I want to talk about, because he... I think, like, I think Scar was my favorite before him, but now... I just... I don't think I've ever seen... Like the actual motivations and layers to a, a Disney villain, the way like he's transcended just being a great villain in a kids movie. He's just a fantastic movie villain. Mm-hmm. The scene, he, he's not a kids villain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's his motivations. He's just I, the, the scene where he has her uh, and he smells her hair and he's like, "Oh, I'm just imagining a noose around it," and she's like, "That's not what you're imagining." And it, it's like, "How dare you even?" 
you know, bring up such a thing. Like I was like, whoa, they're they're referencing that. And then his <laughs> song, the song Hellfire, where he's like blaming his own sin of lust on the person he's lusting after, and if 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 he can't have her then she's just going to like have him continue to live in sin. And so his prayer is that either he has her or she burn. I'm like, what is it? Like, <laughs> what's happening? And just the imagery of that song or, uh, yeah, the, of that whole sequence, it, he was just, and his voice, man, everything about him, just such a, and I mean, I guess, you know, obviously we're talking about spoilers, but, I think this is also my favorite Disney villain death ever. Mm-hmm. When he says, you know, he will smite them and cast them into the fire and then boom, it breaks and he falls down. And it's it's so, so <laughs> satisfying. Yeah. But. The thing about his character is the, 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 the film deals with so much. Just, you know, as I said, you know, from about prejudice and, you know, society and like you know, society, how it can tend to, persecute those who are different whether it be a different skin color or a different culture but also just you know how he views himself as the good man he's right he he is righteous and he is doing god's work by committing all these cruelties and injustices but it is it is okay because they're wicked and he is not and so like the, the first lines of hellfire you know yeah i am rightly prideful of my righteousness or something like that or like you know He's, he's, uh, he longed to purge the world of vice and sin, but he saw uh, corruption everywhere except within. But, like, so when, when he is faced by undeniable evidence of sin within himself, his lusting after Esmeralda, he can't, like, he, he it, like you know, it, it shakes him to his core. But instead of, you know, repenting or realizing his own sinfulness, he... He is so he is so consumed with the idea that he cannot be the sinful one. That it, it reminds me a lot of uh, Atticus Finch's speech in To Kill a Mockingbird. He talks. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the film, but he talks about how, and that it's a very actually a very similar film with a lot of similar themes. But the you know, the idea that she is this evidence of his sin in, in his mind. She it's it's her fault if he is sinning. It has to be because she's a witch. It cannot be because he's a sinful person. So he's literally, but he, but he's also so consumed by his by his lust that he is willing to risk damnation if he can only have her. But if he can't, in his mind, he has to destroy her to save his own soul. It, it's it's so crazy. How, how is this in a Disney film? Why are we talking about this? I know <laughs> it's so weird. I can so easily see a human becoming a normal person becoming like this. You know, his, his, you know as I said, you know, pride, lust, and fear is what it's what will drive any person if we allow it to. But he just, you know, he takes it to their, their like their farthest their farthest conclusions, and it, it's incredible. And the song, you know, where he like the the red robed accusers line up around him, and all the like, the swirling colors and the flame. It's it's. It's an incredible sequence. Um, just like nothing I've seen in a Disney film, and the Tony Jay's performance is just again, just he he has that powerful, imposing voice, but you also just fear you just, just see the the fear and anguish 
and and you never exactly feel sorry for him, but you almost do because he is he is human. Again, ah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's. I remember you know the the opening scene when he's um he's about to throw uh Cosimoto into the well and you know, this this first act that you think might be this act of good like maybe something's changed now that he's confronted with it an instant like every every good deed is like it's he's almost fooling himself into thinking that he's he's good um but it, it all stem like it all goes back to him like I, he's doing this because he fears for his own soul and you know perhaps this person this hideous beast can prove his usefulness and it's like he's he's almost arguing with himself in his mind like trying to push away any semblance of guilt that could find a way into his head and he's going to twist it and find a way to make him look like the good guy in all of this and it's like you said it's weird because it's i mean like i said he's my most it's my favorite death of a Disney villain, so I'm not saying I'm feeling sorry for him, but it is weird just because of how real and human he feels. Like, yeah, that's a real guy out there who thinks he's the good guy, especially in comparison to other to a lot of other villains, where they they just exist for the like from their very being, they just exist for the sake of being evil and being in opposition. But he's. He doesn't exist just to be the bad guy at Quasimodo. He exists because he thinks he's the good guy and he's doing the, these things. And it's he has an entire character and personality outside of like this story and this our protagonist. It's just such a well-written character. Yeah, and what's really interesting is that villain songs in general are usually always you know triumphant, but this this one is this one is essentially a, an anguished prayer. We see him, his villain song is him at his weakest moment. And again, that that's what makes him both a, a great character, but also just terrifying because you, know, you see what's really in his heart at that time, at that moment. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess moving on to some of the other characters. Um, I, I think Esmeralda is also is a really good character. I think she's, She's, I think she's there's a lot more to her than a lot of other Disney princesses. Or she has the street smart side to her, um, but there's this like you know deep empathy and compassion um, in uh, in how she relates to the world. How she'll stand up to Frollo to help Quasimodo, or you see it when when she has her own uh, like prayer song, which is kind of mirrored against um, against Frollo's is you know. The God help the outcast. She's praying, you know, for her people. And I guess that goes into something I want to talk about. You know, the portrayal of religion in this film, I found really fascinating. Because, you know, at first, I was worried that it might just be, you know, a film that, you know, is bashing religion in general. Because Frollo is so obvious. He's obviously very religious, but he's also obviously a hypocrite. But... The ch the church is play is put in this very interesting place, kind of between Frollo and the people. Um, we see like how the church is the is put as, as an institution, you know, for the needy, for the outcast, for the broken. And you know, you have, you have the whole idea of sanctuary and the the archdeacon coming out, and you know, confronting Frollo, 
for the murder he committed on the steps and you have the, the eyes of all the saints you know staring down at him um Obviously, I'm. I'm not. We're not. Neither of us are Catholics. We're both Protestants. So we, def, we. There's a lot of. We have a lot of problems with Catholicism. But uh, I did definitely appreciate how the church was presented, just as an idea of what, of what true religion is and should be in the world. You know, as this bastion, this sanctuary that will that will stand against injustices and and stand for the oppressed. Yeah, it was really nuanced, and I, I ended up loving the way it was handled because. I feel like lesser films that have don't have a great grasp on how to really handle an issue that has a lot of different sides would just take the Frollo character and end it with that. But this is... Which is, I think, what Hugo did. Because he, in, in, in the book, he's actually a priest. Oh, okay. But, uh, actually, I think this, this, this film might actually add more nuance with the book, than the book, which is very interesting. Not happen often. Um... But yeah, I just I, I did really like the way that they handled it. Where it, you know, j- even between you know, the church and religion is the central focus point of both those songs that you say mirror each other. And I think it's not like this thing where maybe you know it's bad for it. You know, where it's it's kind of fifty fifty. Like it's it's whatever these people want it to be. Even when he is wanting to or convincing himself that he's doing it for like for righteous reasons and this and that like like we said the hellfire is a song of accusation like he's saying this and he's we have these red robed figures appearing around him we have him like consistently at the feet of this furnace it's not it's not there backing up his opinion and then whenever esmeralda sings her song you know it's it feel it you know it's within the actual sanctuary and it seems to be at peace with everything that else is going around now i feel like it it almost just portrays um farlow like like a pharisee you know this this person who has very clear like a, a major disconnect and has twisted it for personal gain and um prideful reasons and things like that so i just the whole way they handled it i thought was really really well done especially for a kids movie yeah uh like the scene where you have the line of people offering up all everyone you know, offering up their own prayers it was it's so powerful the imagery the the religious imagery in this film is so powerful like the way the church is shown again i'm not a catholic but that feels like the place you would go if you want to talk to god <laughs> you know so the film the film is so visually gorgeous and just the music and the way the uh alan mankin wove in the the latin monasterial chants into everything um yeah just how you know christianity is shown you know it it it, it doesn't shy away from the fact that people do corrupt it people do take it and use it for their own selfish reasons and to justify horrific actions but i think it, it also obviously imperfectly because Disney is not a Christian company, but it shows what a pure and true religion can be. Um, and I really, really like that. And then we've already mentioned it a little bit, but I do, I feel like the score in this is definitely good enough to just receive conversation and praise about it by itself. Cause man, like the songs themselves individually, 
are fantastic. Man, the 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 monks. It's just it's so weird like the how versatile you can be with that where it's it's just beautiful and calming and like exactly what you'd expect to hear like walking into heaven. And then it's just intense and like abrasive and epic and it's the way that Megan just uses this to fit whatever mood the movie is in, whether it's like driving an action scene or heightening the emotional drama or, you know, helping with the, the chemistry between two characters, just talking like this. The score is just so dynamic and well done, and it sets itself apart from any, not just any other Disney movie, but just a lot of other movies. It's so unique to this. Yeah, it, it feels so at home in the world represented with. And like as as the movie the movies began and we just hear this big bold introduction to this world i just wrote down all caps music just because it, it is it is so powerful and it it fits so well with the you know the gothic architecture and just because the, the film is so gorgeous you know the vision we get of this whatever time period that is in paris uh is just so epic and absorbing you it just sweeps you up into the to the whole it sweeps you up into the story um and just the introduction the introductory song by uh, sung by um i forget his name yeah sung by uh paul candela as a uh, cloppen uh is is really first of all it's just great storytelling how it introduces it, it, every every necessary element or, or most necessary most of the necessary elements of the story but also all the thematic ideas of you know the oppression of the gypsies or Frollo's self-righteousness or or his relationship to Quasimodo it's just and but even on top of that it's just a beautifully atmospheric just piece of storytelling um like just I like as I said I I discovered the soundtrack long before the film and I could I could see that whole I just I created that whole scene in my head just because of how evocative the music is yeah, it's it's really impressive the the marriage of um of the music and imagery in this movie. Like this we we've said it many times, like this movie is just a gorgeous looking movie. The animation is incredible. And it is it is weird. Like they're they're they both work together so well to set this tone. Uh and the way the songs do, like, they carry the story forward, especially that open one, uh, the opening song, where by the end of it, we already feel trans, like transported to this new world with these new characters, and we feel completely caught up, which is exactly what an introductory song should do. Um, but the way, like, it blends in, like, the, the visuals kind of ebb and flow with the song itself and the way it cuts back and forth between like the guy singing and the actual scene and the even the just the lighting of it it all works together so like so well it feels like like the two there had to be consistent contact i mean I'm, I'm i don't even know how these movies are made and i'm sure there probably wasn't but like it just feels like both work together so well that it was it couldn't have been any other way yeah um then just the the song uh was it stay with me i should know this the the, the song with uh between 
furloughing Quasimodo, which adds even another dimension to Frollo's character. Um, you know, how he's, he, even though he plays the kindly father, he's still, there is nothing but manipulation in his relationship with Quasimodo. He is completely using him, and in theory, he's protecting him from the world, but even then, he's, 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 uh, uh you know, indoctrinating him to and trying to destroy any like self-worth he can have you know you're telling him you know you're you're deformed and having uh quasimodo repeat the lines back you know i am a monster only a monster it's it's so heartbreaking just but it, it says so much about the character both characters um you know quasimodo's innocence and his just evil but it gosh I don't. How is this a kids' movie, man? <laughs> I feel like that's the tagline for this episode. It's just how did this happen? We, the scene. I remember thinking that as he's tied up and spun around, and we he he looks. Oh, it's so sad. He looks to Frollo and he's you know shouting, "Master, help!" And he thinks like this. This is a suitable punishment. This person who just wanted to leave and experience this thing that I've grown. To have nothing but disdain for like this is this is the reason that you should have if there's ever a reason to like have any sort of dislike for what's happening it's because people can get like this but the one the one thing that you should actually complain about this festival with is is the thing he ends up finding i don't know like not enjoyment but approval of as if they're somehow an act like giving him a righteous punishment for leaving it's uh, such a, a sad scene too yeah uh, the portrayal of medieval culture f- also feels so authentic you know the film rightly praises you know the beauty of the architecture and you know the, the budding artistic sense you know in the beginning of the, Re- the renaissance you know we, we really should still build cathedrals those things are really yeah. cool but it also just it, i think it doesn't shy away from the the general brutality and hardship that existed there um you know the soldiers like threatening every people in the streets or in that case you know the mob enjoying torturing this innocent man just because because they can uh it it feels very real to the time period and i think it just kind of it highlights that mob mentality like there's so many times in the movie where i just felt like whoever was giving the the best speech the person that they're all willing to take up arms for just kind of true and so to just see the way that people outside like who aren't actually personally aware of these people and have personal relationships in a group can just be manipulated into doing almost anything with without that actual personal connection which i think is a huge you know point of the movie is that it's it's easier to do things like this without actually knowing someone um even with with Quasimodo and his relationship with Esmeralda when he's like, you're not like the other gypsies, you know, and he's, even after meeting her and seeing what they're actually like, he still has this idea that, that's been driven into his head that these kind of people are this way and she just must be the exception. Yeah, yeah, just the the, the portrayal of like an ingrained prejudice or and or racism or whatever is really that that scene is really again subtle and just you know how 
he, he like keeps putting his foot in his mouth because he's repeating the lies he's been told, even though like in his head intellectually he knows they're wrong, but they're just kind of ingrained that he just keeps slipping out. Um, and he also, while wow, he also he's also learning about the the, the in, humanity of the gypsies. Uh, Esmeralda is also, you know, showing him his own humanity. You know, she's like reading his palm, you know, telling all the lines. Yeah, I don't see it. There's no monster line. You know, th- there's nothing about you really. You are not, you know, you're not a monster. There's nothing inherently monstrous about you. You know, it's, you know, affirming, you know, the inherent humanity in all of us. And I, and then it goes back to the, to the very end uh, where Esmeralda kind of turning back to Quasimodo is kind of offering a hand to the audience. Kind of, it's just, really powerful affirmation you know, of the, you know, the inherent dignity and worth in every human, you know, no matter what they look like or where they come from. Yeah. And that's, that's what I like. One of the many things that I liked about this movie is that the message is obvious enough to where you can watch it with the kid and like they, they get the points, but it's super nuanced. So like, if that's a movie that you're going to grow up on, you are going to like pick up on things as it goes up. Cause it's, you know, a lot of times with these with children's movies, you watch it and like they'll water down the message so much toward the movies, like beating you over the head with it. And it's, I mean, it's essentially like the whole point of they they play their their cards at the beginning of the movie just to be obvious with it. But this one, it's we see it develop continuously through these relationships in a very real way that feels thought out as opposed to just I want to make a movie that says prejudice is bad it's like well i'm going to make a movie that says that but i'm going to tell it with in in very real mature ways that they like get me out without paying attention you can tell that's exactly what it's about but when you do pay attention you're rewarded for it because you realize there was a lot of subtlety in it another thing that i'm sort of mixed on is the gypsies themselves i really like uh, clopin as a character he's just really fun um and i love how his singing just is really fast, quippy, uh, kind of as he's, you know, dancing through the crowd and coming out all these different costumes and <laughs> the song about how even his dialogue itself is just quippy. Yeah. <laughs> the song they sing when they're about to hang them, it's very disturbing, but it's a, it's a, it's a really great song. And he's, you know, how he's the lawyers and judge and he keeps changing costumes and I got, it's, it's so much fun, but, then that leads to kind of a problem, which is you supposedly gypsies aren't all thieves, but here they're they are showing <laughs> we see that they're actually actually are thieves, yeah. and they're about to kill somebody without even without even a trial. It's just like, well, according to this, then yeah, Frollo's right. So the film is a little inconsistent in how it portrays the gypsies, but uh, I'll give it points just for how colorful and fun it is. Yeah, I love the line when he says, uh, any last words? And it's just muffled, like, oh, that's what they all say. It's, it's, he's such a, he's a really well-written character. It's, it's legitimately great dialogue. Yeah, it's like, these, they, these men aren't spies? Well, why didn't they say so? <laughs> it, and it does, like, it is, that's, that's what I thought too, where I'm like, they're kind of justifying Frollo right now. Um, <laughs> because now, we've not only seen Esmeralda be the one person to, to step out from the, the, just the mob of, of the streets of Paris, but now for a second time, she's stepping out of the mob of the gypsies to save them. So it's like, there's really no difference. And maybe like, 
the mob was, I mean, as cruel and horrible as it is, were making fun of him. <laughs> with a joke and a quip, they're about to hang these people. So it did, it does feel like the movie... And they're really enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. I think the movie kind of forgot what it had just said about the gypsies previously. Yeah, because that is sort of a scene... It's a scene from the book, but in a different context. And also, with the, uh, the, mob, the scene where they torture uh, Quasimodo, that also takes the, the Festival of Fools with the humiliation scene and kind of smushes them together in a way that I don't, I don't think exactly works because one moment they're cheering for him and another moment all of a sudden they're like torturing him like it was their plan all along, which doesn't really make sense because it seems everybody wants to be king. And if this is what happens to kings, then the king of fools it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But I think each scene individually is really powerful. Or, well, one is really fun, one is really powerful, but I don't know that they work together. And same with the uh, scene where they're about to hang them. It, it it, confu- it kind of contradicts itself a little bit. Yeah, I, I think the, the Festival of Fools one works a little bit more just because, to me, it, it just showed how easy people can change. Like, whenever one singular idea is out there for someone to grab onto and then everybody's grabbing onto it. Like, they see him at first and it's like, oh, he's hideous. And then he says, oh, no, like, that's that's the point. He's, he's like the king now. And so then they're they're all happy and then... Someone else, like, all it takes is one person to have the cruel ideas, like, oh, you think he's gross now, and, like, I'm going to make fun of him, and everyone else is like, oh, I guess that's the thing we're doing now. It, just how easy it is for mob mentality to take in the second an idea is out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, we did mention Phoebus. Um, I love Kevin Klein. I think he's, a, he's an excellent voice actor. He, he plays a very much kind of an everyman kind of character but he also he's really quippy in a very fun way um and he's also just a really he plays a really good just stand-up guy the kind of guy you want to hang out with um but he's also they give him a, a lot of very uh clever dialogue i think and i think this is a place there are places where the humor doesn't work i think he's his character is a place where the humor in the film really does work i was about to say i i kind of wish i wrote more of his dialogue down just because I, I remember the scene where he first confronts Esmeralda and he's fighting, like, you know, she's got the candlestick and he's got a sword. And there, there are a lot of great lines <laughs> where he says, uh, you, you almost fight like a man. And she <laughs> says, uh, I was going to say the same to you. You know, that's a little below the belt. And it, like, it was actually really good dialogue. Like, this is going to work in a, like, a live action movie. This isn't just let's throw lines that kids are going to laugh at. Like there's their exchanges were just really quippy in a way that made sense for their characters. And just, I don't know. I, I really liked his character too, because he wasn't just a one note person. There's this, you do have a sense of honor and maybe he would even go maybe slightly too far with certain things, but he, he has that line that he sees is clearly being crossed and he's not going to cross it. And and then with his relationship with Quasimodo, when Quasi doesn't want to actually go out and help, you don't get that, like, it's okay, like, we, you know, you, you've done a lot already. He's kind of like, all right, I just thought you were made of more. You do what you think is right. Like, he feels, once again, he feels like a real person. The way he interacts with Esmeralda and the way he interacts with Quasimodo and the way he's he sees that Quasimodo is clearly affectionate towards Esmeralda and he he responds to him in the kindest way you know where he says oh don't thank me thank quasi like it's i mean you described it best he's just a stand-up guy 
but one that doesn't feel like let me just write a shallow stand-up guy someone that you clearly just have to root for like he's he's still a character yeah i I, you know i like that scene where he he makes sure that even though he he also knows that quasimodo is you know quote-unquote competition he still makes sure like quasimodo gets his due his is a he makes sure she knows that what he did and also i like the scene where um where he goes after quasimodo lets her escape and he sneaks in and quasimodo's trying to scare him out with a torch he's like you know, t- next time you see her, tell her she's lucky to have a friend like you. And yeah, he, he, he is just such a good guy. And on top of all, you know, just the fun and the quips, we see him, he's put in this really hard place of being, you know, the the, the ranking officer over Frollo's troops. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of like Holocaust parallels, you know, where you see a guy who's, who's whole life is, it's about, you know, duty, honor, and obeying orders. And now he's forced into a situation to do things where he clearly knows are wrong. First of all, he he kind of goes along with it very uncomfortably. And finally, you know, he just says enough is enough and stands up to it. And just his line went out after when Furlow says it's just a, a waste of such a promising career. He says, I consider it my highest honor. Which is a good line. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's actually a similar role to uh, that he had with uh, Kenneth Branagh in The Road to El Dorado, which they're the best part of the film. I don't really like the film, but they're all, they're really fun. He He has the same kind of Fun quippiness, though, without probably some of the depth. Uh, yeah, but slime. He was like, Ugh, "It feels like a fourteen seventy burgundy." Yeah, not a good year. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess while we're talking about the characters, we'll go ahead and talk about one of the only things I'm just not a really big fan of at all, which is the characters. Must we? Of uh, we have to just to show that we thought about the movie. Um. The characters of the gargoyles, <laughs> sure, they're fine characters. They're f- they can be funny. They belong in a different movie. This is not the movie for these people. Yeah. It's so, first of all, this movie is supernatural in zero ways other than them. That, that alone kind of bothered me because it's clearly not just something that Quasi's seeing. They're interacting with the world. You see them, like, they'll turn to stone like they're Andy's toys at the sight of anyone other than Quasi. And so it's like, for why are there magical gargoyles on this church building? That just bothers me. This isn't a supernatural Disney movie, or at least shouldn't be. Yeah. Oh, look, this, the scenes where they do turn back into stone are, like, the best scenes they're involved in because the, the imagery is so evocative and mysterious. And you almost question, like, is he mad? Is he imagining this? And that could have been a cool aspect to explore about his character, but it never does. It just kind of it just uses them for really bad jokes. Yeah. And another thing that they do that is often very funny in Disney movies and could have worked in another movie, but not in this one, is I this movie felt so cemented in its time period. Like it was very much this time in Paris, other than the fact that you're using British accents, but whatever. <laughs> that's what they all do. I'm, I'm convinced that that's just what every place other than America sounds like. Um, but it feels very authentic. And then we have her sending off birds to the Wicked Witch's theme from Wizard of Oz. And then he's chewing up 
stuff and flying around like an airplane and you have these bullet sound effects as this mob is like as, like the there's fires and the church is burning and Frollo is making his climb up these stairs and then we cut to them pretending to be airplanes and to making like making nods to modern things and it's like you're ruining the the integrity of this movie like this movie is its own thing. It felt like two separate things. Like b- because they pretty much only interacted with Quasi. It was like there's the real movie, and then there's these really weird scenes where Quasi talks to these guys, and then we're back to the real movie. They don't. They didn't feel like they were a part of the actual story because they just felt so shoehorned in. Yeah, and they're in a lot of the movie. I, I think that they might be like in twenty percent of the film. There's a lot of scenes with them. And ah oh gosh, and the, the 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 least subtle parts of the film, you know, when when they're discussing theme, are with them, and the, the humor. Some of the jokes work. I think the catapult joke, ready, aim, fire. <laughs> they just throw it off. It's kind of funny, but uh, just as you said, they are in a different film, and like the the they make so many references to other time periods, whereas the rest of the film is so cemented, as you said, in this time period, and so naturalistic. It just it it doesn't work, and I th- they are what keeps this film from being I think the masterpiece that the rest of it is. It's just you know you have these incredible songs like Hellfire, and then you have dumb gargoyles making dumb modern jokes about whatever. It's it's, it's really really frustrating. Yeah, I just man, and I what stinks is. A lot of what they do is inconsequential, but there are certain moments where I feel like they are playing an important part, and I'm like, man, there's there's no way to really truly edit them out without, in some way, like cutting something important to the story. Because if there was, like, I feel like I would find that edit, and that would be the only version I would watch. <laughs> but unfortunately, there's there's a few moments where they do kind of interact with what's going on and. Like, Quasimodo reaches an important emotional conclusion for his character in a conversation with one of them, and it just really irritates me. I do like, I do like that line though. We're made of stone. We just thought you may have something stronger. It's a good line, but yeah. Why give it to them? <laughs> it's not worth it in the end. Yeah. Um. And the, the, just the vision. We talked a bit about, but the visuals overall. I I definitely prefer CGI animation. Like after you know How to Train Your Dragon, the two How to Train Your Dragon films, or The Good Dinosaur. Um, like one of the main reasons I I, I side with a uh, 3D is that I had yet to have seen a 2D animated film that that made my jaw drop with the imagery. Until now, um, there are some insane shots, just like where the, the camera's just swooping in and around the church and the bells or Quasimodo like on top of the tower singing and the camera's just going around him. Or I think my favorite shot in the film is where he swings out on the rope over the crowd in the fire to uh, save Esmeralda. That is an insanely good scene. I, I'm pretty sure there is some CGI in there, which <laughs> which goes to show you. But hey, it, it's it's just the, the, just the way all the, the gothic architecture is just ingrained into the themes into this just style and heart of the film is is incredible and i think it works really well in this movie just because you think of this period in time and you think of the architecture and you think of like the paintings and so for it to be 2d like to to have some sort of semblance of like being an illustration i think 
works with with the actual story itself or at least the you know the context of the movie um and they just, they do a lot of cool things with with 2D animation in it yeah uh the way like they the fact that they do rotate the camera so much in a way that actually feels right and doesn't feel really jarring in the movie uh and the color palette of the movie is just awesome fire yeah like that that whole scene is amazing um and the way fire the way the fire is actually depicted in the movie is really cool um but like it can be super vibrant and beautiful and then it can be like very bleak and almost oppressive it's just it's used to really good effect yeah and also another thing with the animation is just the slapstick comedy like with the feast of full sequence it just that that's where 2d animation also really shines i think you know in that kind of tom and jerry kind of style of fun and the, the the sequence there is like right right up there with the best of them, I think. And and unlike the gargoyles, it works. <laughs> yeah. Although just to say one other negative thing other than the gargoyles, and this is probably just a personal thing for me, it was I I did kind of dislike some of the stuff. Like I get it. It's like opposite day, <laughs> or what, what were they calling it? Was that what topsy turvy day? Topsy turvy day. But like the scenes of like the dogs walking the people, <laughs> and then like flowers sprouting out of the guys. Like maybe it's just because like I was I liked what was going on. Like I I liked that the whole movie, other than the gargoyles, just felt so grounded. So that when we see like smiling animal, like Disney style animals walking around, from I get like this is just definitely a personal thing for me, but. I didn't. I I always got a little bit angry anytime anything happened that would kind of break the reality that the movie overall was living in. <laughs> yeah, I, I I just get. I love that the Topsy Turvy song so much. This is just so much zany energy to that. I just go swept up and just hey, it's Topsy Turvy Day, man. That's the way it works. Deal with it. <laughs> Admit, I guess just the final climax is so good. So often in these animated films, I feel I feel kind of, even though they they kind of go for the grandeur, I, just, I always feel a bit let down. But this one, in the climax of the book, is incredible, I, I, or at least the the uh, British version is. But it took that and just really went for it. You know the see how it played the siege and where <laughs> the images it, it creates. Just just to have him standing on the wall crying sanctuary with a uh, Esmeralda or or a. Uh, you know the gargoyles spitting flames down. It, it's there is so much like I I don't know if I can say it's iconic because no one really talks about it, but it should be iconic imagery in that sequence. Um, and it actually it, I I even I even enjoy even though it's a bit more slapstick. Just the fighting on the ground I think is very well done as well. Uh, it's just a, a very good sequence, and as it builds um with you know Frollo c- coming up there to kill him and. As you know, he, as you said, you know, he's standing there, and he shall smite the wicked. And it's like God strikes him down, and he's holding onto the gargoyle, and it comes alive as a demon as it plunges him into hell. It's, gosh, I love this movie, dude. <laughs> that was the one time where it got like a little supernatural, and I was like, okay, like the idea that he's looking back at this demonic figure as he realizes that his last words were like quoting scripture, and now he he it it dawns on him that he is what it what that's referring to and so he sees this 
this imagery is the last thing he sees in this life. It's just it that that's what worked for me. Yeah, it it, it earned after Hellfire. It it earns that supernatural imagery there. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else? Uh, I think that's about it for me. I could just talk about man. There's I do. There's just so much other things that can be said about like the thematic depth of this movie. Like you said, it's not just about prejudice. It's not just about religious corruption. It's not just it's it's not about any one thing. It's about a lot of different things. Like every character brings their own thematic luggage with them, almost like every. And it's because they wrote everybody human. If you write a character that's very human you're going to naturally end up writing very human themes and flaws and things to discuss. So just because I think the writing was so well done and there was a lot of nuance, there's just so much to talk about with this movie. Yeah. <laughs> like you, I, I, I want to keep talking. Just, I could, I could rave about Frollo forever, just, but we're not, we're, <laughs> we've pretty much gone over what we like. So um, actually what they meant to ask you earlier is uh, what do you, what do you think about musicals in general? Are you, you someone who uh, really likes them or you kind of tolerate them? Oh, if if a musical is well done, I, I, I mean, you of all people know how much I love La La Land. So, um, <laughs> I'm I'm all. Wait, that was a musical. It was an amazing musical, and it is a piece of American art. But no, I'm I'm definitely I grew up with like with the MGM classics. So there's, and and Disney movies. I I I feel like I'm scratching off the the last of the disney classics that i somehow never saw growing up so there's definitely a, a special place in my heart for uh for well done musicals yeah i i i've always found myself gravitating towards the villain songs i mean i love me a fun bit of music or a, you know, a good love song but there's something about or not even not even necessarily the vil- always the villain songs but the songs where you know that that kind of dive into the heart of the character's psyche or about kind of some kind of torment i think that, that those are songs that really take advantage of the the format of the musical and because it, because you in most musicals when characters sing they're speaking the truth and so it allows the characters to like literally pour out their heart in a way that they usually they, they usually can't if it weren't for a musical it it, it just allows you to just dive into a, uh, someone's soul in a way that film generally just can't do just because of, because people don't actually see, act like that. Yeah. But, so and I, I think Hellfire melds the best of that, you know, the villain, you know, people, I don't something about villain songs that really uh, connect with people. Just, I guess everyone wants to be bad sometimes, whatever, but <laughs> this, it, it has, you know, the, the villain, the villainy, but it also has that deep, soul searching and anguish um and i think th- th- i really like musicals that do that which is funny enough my favorite musical of all time is les miserables which also victor hugo and i think that is another another uh, musical that I think really takes advantage of that and really you know dives into the humanity of his characters and their pain and whatnot yeah so i think th- this one takes advantage of its format and uses it really well to advance its themes and also explore the characters in ways that even, even, even like this, a lot of Disney has a lot of great musicals, but I think there's a depth and thought behind the music here that we don't always see. Yeah. The songs definitely feel like they're 
character driven as opposed to just be one more catchy tune like it's not there just to get stuck in your head but it's exactly what you were saying musicals do it's saying it's emoting to the audience in a way that dialogue just couldn't yeah all right so is there anything else you want to mention before we move into our final thoughts uh i think i'm good all right I'll, i'll start um I didn't grow up with Disney films, or only only a couple of them. Uh, like I haven't, I still haven't seen a lot of the princess classic princess films. So, grow, I grew up instead with like Pixar. So going back to even the Disney Renaissance, it's always a little disappointing when you hear about all these classics, and they're good, but so often you know the characters feel a little flat, the themes feel kind of heavy-handed or non-existent. Then coming to this one, and they're seeing so much depth and thought and into the themes and the characters and the story. I think this might be my favorite uh, Disney 2D animated film. Just because it feels so much more thoughtful and dimensional than those films, but also just because it's such a, it's a gorgeous film to look at. Uh, You know, the, um, the animation is fantastic. The characters are good. The, it's beautiful, really amazing music, even outside the singing. Just Alan Menken's score is insane. Uh, and then just all the themes it dives into. Things that a lot of live action films can't even handle. Just, you know, religion and corruption, all of that uh, prejudice and whatnot. All of that stuff is, I think, really beautifully handled in a way that, I mean, I, I would say, I, I think it's, it is subtle. I mean, obviously, it's a kid could still explain understand it but it's not as you said it, it doesn't bash you over the head as much as most kids films would um it's really i think it, it has a great sense of humor besides the gargoyles <laughs> but yeah I, I i think if it weren't for those gargoyles and the amount of screen time they have i think this film could truly be a masterpiece just because it ha- it has such a strong sense of identity and purpose behind everything it is doing. Um, and it's just so powerful. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with all of that. Um, other than not growing up with Disney, obviously. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Honestly, I'm going to need to watch this one again because I do feel like it's a contender for my favorite now. Um, I, I think just in terms of being a movie and dealing with themes and written characters there's not really a lot of others that that can compete with it on that front it's going to be a like a lot of nostalgia getting a lot of my <laughs> others you know raise the point but just talking about this movie by itself i i was super impressed with how it was almost a juggling act with different themes and it never felt like it handled any of them in any clumsy way and i can almost for forgive the movie for the gargoyles almost because like it, the movie in a way felt like they didn't even want the gargoyles in it. Like I could, I could picture someone saying, yeah, we, I mean, you literally had a song about a villain blaming his lust on the woman he's lusting after. <laughs> like I have to market this towards kids, write some funny gargoyles into the script. Like I'm going to let you keep that song, but you have to get, Throw me something I can put on this box art just to sell it. So it's, it feels like they're divorced from this movie. So it, it's not the kind of complaint where it's like, 
I love the movie, but there's this integral thing that I just don't think really works or there's this important character that the movie knows is important that doesn't quite work. Like they're so far removed that I can actually look at the main whole of the movie and say there's almost nothing wrong with it. So yeah, in a way it makes it better and in a way it makes it worse because at the end of the day it's just so unnecessary. But this movie is so confident in itself and its themes and its characters and it has every reason to be. It's beautiful. It sounds amazing. It's super witty. Like the dialogue is just incredibly smart. Um, and, and yeah, it's it's really, I understand why it's not really talked about much, but it is a shame that this movie doesn't receive the discussion it should. Yeah, I, I wonder if they're going to do a, a live action remake of this one. That would be a film to see. That would be true. If they could get rid of the gargoyles, which I'm not sure they would, but <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 incredible. If you if you have if you've listened to this and haven't seen it, what's wrong with you? Go watch it. So yeah, that was our review for the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please uh, take a moment, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, and if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook. We are there as Underrated Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at underrated underscore pod. And if you want to find some of our other reviews, you can go to underratedpodcast.com. Oh, okay, so uh, next week is your pick, James. What will we be looking at? We are going to be watching Men in Black 3. And this is a... I, I saw it in the theater, and I was not really expecting anything. Because I, I love the first one. Uh, I think the first one is just one of the most fun movies imaginable. And I thoroughly despise the second one. So... <laughs> I was pretty nervous going in, but I actually think that 3 is able to stand very firmly with the first one. So, it just seems like not enough people agree with me, so I had to pick it. <laughs> yeah, I've only seen each of them once. Uh, and I, I, I don't know why, but I wasn't a huge fan of 1. Maybe I need to see it again when I was younger. I, I do remember also quite enjoying 3, um, so I'm definitely looking forward to talking about that. So... Until next week, whenever we do talk about a very underrated sci-fi movie, we will see you later. See ya.